Hey, what's up, guys? We have an awesome podcast this week. James and I were fortunate enough to be able to interview Stuart Harvey Lee of Prime Studio. It was a wonderful podcast. Stuart talks about his work and how he founded the studio, so I hope you enjoy it. We also want to thank our promotional partner, Design Daily, at Let's Design Daily on Instagram. You guys know the deal. They're always posting great stuff, so check them out. Um, we also have another promotional partner this week, the IDSA. They're doing a virtual sustainability deep dive June 3rd through the 5th. And there's some awesome presenters like Tucker Viermeister, Gary Hustwit, and Nike's sustainability design lead, Noah Murphy Reinhartz. They'll be deep diving into sustainable business strategies, materials, and processes. So check that out. You can learn more and sign up at idsa.org forward slash SDD2020. Also, as always, got to follow on Spotify, rate five stars, iTunes, subscribe on that YouTube. Also, make sure you're on the Discord if you're not already. I want to hear your thoughts on this episode. And also, got to shout out Kiyoshi the Kid for the amazing intro and outro. All right, guys, I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's get to it. Minor details. I'm Nick. I'm James. And I'm Stuart. And we are three designers in the big city, sweating the small, small stuff. stuff. <laughs> uh, we are super excited to have Stuart Harvey Lee of Prime Studios here today. Stuart has a long uh, list of experiences working for startups um, and f- you know f- founding his own design studio in New York City, Prime Studios, as well as has some experience at Smart Design and some other places, and we're excited to have you here. Thanks for coming in. No, it's a pleasure. Actually, <laughs> thanks for letting us come to your studio. <laughs> well, thank, thank you for coming. I appreciate yeah. it. If you're watching the YouTube, you can see that we are here at Prime Studios. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. awesome. We've got a beautiful museum of, of Prime's work through the well, years behind us, so we can grab stuff as we're talking. And it's probably the most luxurious space we've ever <laughs> recorded I, in. Yeah, I well, can actually... Ho- hopefully, it's a living museum. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, it's a show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Stuart, we always like to start off a little bit with your background and your story, and you know maybe you can just tell us, you know where you you grew up and how you got into design and and uh, you know where you went to school and things like that. Yeah, sure. So um, you know, like all the best stories, it was a happy accident. <laughs> uh, um, so I grew up in the north of England, a little town uh, by the seaside called Scarborough, Mm. um, where, to be honest, I had very little exposure to design at all. Um, I I really didn't know what design was until I was actually later in my 20s. Mm. Um, I mean, of course, I was aware of it, but I I hadn't really registered the fact that it was design per se, you know? Um, So I started off um, my career actually as an engineer. Um, so I was one of those people who's, I can never remember whether it's right brain or left brain, but I'm pretty good at like the maths and the analytical side of things. Which I think one that's that? left brain. Okay. Right? Uh, I think so. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully I have a bit of both. Right. But, right. Uh, 
But yeah, I was I was pretty good on the mathematical side of things. So um, I actually ended up going to uh, engineering college called Imperial College in London. Mm. Um, and the course that I chose to get on there was called um, Total Technology. It was really mechanical engineering. But in order to do this course, you also had to be sponsored by a firm. And uh, I did a, I got sponsored by, it was the old British Steel, um, British, yeah, British Steel, that then changed to United Engineering Steels. It went through like a number of buyouts and mm -hmm. whatever. Um, so for the year before I went to college, I actually went to Sheffield and I was basically, you know, an undergraduate trainee. So I went through, in essence, what was like an apprenticeship. Hmm. So, you know, I did the electrical section, learn how to rewire motors. I learned how to uh -huh. weld, um, learned how to build a toolbox out of sheet metal. That sounds cool. Yeah, That's it was. Awesome. It, yeah. was it was a really kind of hands-on practical skill thing. Um, and then, then I went onto the factory floor and uh, I went through all the various departments of the steelworks and I used to go back in the summers there and work in the different departments. And, uh, you know, I was like 18 years old and it was to be exposed to that heavy industry was just mind blowing to me. Mm. Um, and what, you know, we used to go out with the fitters and go up on the crane tracks and like fix broken gearboxes on cranes and things like that. It was, it was so scary. <laughs> I, I used to have a really, you know, pretty vivid like fear of heights. Yeah. Until they sent me up on the crane tracks with a block and tackle, and you had to kind of walk along to the crane and oh, it, and over all the melting pits where the ingots were and yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> did you like look up to God and you're like, please show me a sign of another way? Yeah. Oh, well, man. I yeah. So I I learned two things from that. So. One thing was that I didn't want to work in heavy engineering. Yeah. And then I think the second thing was that I do believe it gave me a really deep appreciation of people that do work in manufacturing. Mm. And it's something that I always think about as we're, you know, designing products um, down the line. You know, it's like, what's it, this going to be like for the person that actually has to assemble this or to right. make, make this in the, in the factory? So, yeah, so... Imperial College was in South Kensington, and next door was the Royal College of Art. Mm. And um, we used to go to the Royal College of Art for lunch just because the cafeteria was better. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Literally. And that's how I kind of got started to get exposed to, you know, the design side of things. So the RCA, you know, the Royal College, it's a postgraduate college. Um, so basically, I finished my engineering degree. Mm -hmm. Um, applied to the RCA and got in uh, to a course called Industrial Design Engineering. So it was basically like industrial design for people with an engineering background. Oh, that's interesting. Huh. I, I never even heard of that before. So was there, aside from the, the good food, was there, was there something, was there like, did you see a show of industrial design work? Was there something that made you think like, oh, industrial design, like that's where I want to be? A little bit, but I also think a lot of it, to be honest, was just moving to London mm. and being exposed to, you know, so much, so many more things than I had done in a little seaside town. You know, that's where mm. I first saw like cool stereo equipment. You know, we used to go down Tottenham Court Road on a Saturday to look, you know, 
look in the stereo shops and just like, ooh. And, then, <laughs> and, and, and that's where, you know, I first saw like Bang & Olufsen. I'm mean, like, oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Um, so there was also, there was an affiliation between the two colleges as well. So as I was getting towards the end of my engineering degree, that's when I started to be aware that there was a path to move what I was doing, which was very mathematically based engineering. You know, we were doing, you know, nuclear physics, thermodynamics, all that kind of stuff. But there was a, there was a way that I could translate that into design. And I'd always been like a sketcher and uh, all that kind of stuff. I, you know, when I was a, a real little kid, I used to obsessively draw motorbikes mm. and I'd design motorbikes to, you know, go through the desert or something right. like that. So I guess yeah. like even way back then, that's what I'm saying. I, I didn't necessarily know what design was, but I guess I always had like a kind of a little bit of an inkling towards it. Right. And there was nobody saying like, oh, you know, there's a degree for, you know, transportation design at that point. Was that really known? No, I'm going to say my career advice uh, back then was, you know, you're good at maths, you're good at physics, you should be an engineer. Yeah. Yeah. It's so crazy how hidden like the design field is. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's definitely becoming more mainstream. But, right. You know, it's awesome that we just all stumbled into this thing. Yeah. So once you got into that program, was was it like did everything click? Was it like oh, did like a light bulb go off? This is where I've, I've been I, it, me- meant to be. It clicked in that I knew it was what I wanted to be doing. Yeah. I don't think it clicked in terms of I instantly became a designer. No. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we did a, you know, a pretty aggressive kind of foundation in design skills and color theory and proportion and all that kind of stuff. Um, But I have to say a lot of it was that the the studio at that time was set up so that the industrial design engineers were in the same studio as the people that were pure industrial designers Mm. that had already done an an undergraduate degree in industrial design. So a lot of just... Learning from peers really was what me, you know, got me got me going in the design field. Yeah, yeah. that's really good. So, after you graduated, you came to to New York City for smart design, or how did that transition? Yeah, go? how did your after graduation transition? Work well, out? there was one thing in between actually. So, um, the ACA um, even back then actually had a, a like a pretty high proportion of uh, foreign students. Um, so in, it's a two year postgraduate course. And so in the summer, I actually threw a Japanese colleague, uh, or a Jap- yeah, a Japanese colleague on the course, I actually managed to get an internship in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And this was back in 1990, 1990. Yeah. Wow. I'm, I'm aging myself. But, um, <laughs> And that just completely opened my eyes to the possibilities of the design world, oh, as it were. Man. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just... I mean, at that time, like, Sony, right, was at, yeah. at its, like, peak. It was. It was, like, at that the real zenith of Japanese design just before that, you know, the whole economy crashed, as it were. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and I worked in a, a small consultancy. They were sort of half product and half digital. What was their name? Are they still around? Or? No, they're not around. They're called, they were called Saurus. Okay. Uh, it was about a... 12 person firm um we were working on projects for rico um we did like it was almost like a a dedicated email computer (laughs) interesting (laughs) it was all it was kind of like a tethered tablet 
yeah. that allowed you huh. to send messages to people in your office. And it was just email? Yeah, just email. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I worked on a few other projects. I did some, uh, designed some bathware for Toto. And mm. We worked on some furniture for department stores. It was pretty varied, actually. Yeah. And I think that experience was one of the things that made me realize that I, I crave that variety. And that's mm. why I always wanted to work in an agency. Mm. So then when I graduated, which was 91, um, you know, the economy in England was dreadful. Mm. Uh, it was like a major recession and, you know, it was after the Thatcher years and manufacturing had been kind of decimated in England at that point. So there, right. there just really wasn't that many design jobs. Yeah. Um, and I think the fact that I'd been to Japan kind of made me realize I could go anywhere in the world. And I yeah. didn't have to, I didn't have to stay, right. you know, in England. So, yeah. um, my girlfriend, uh, who's now my wife, she'd moved out to New York the year before she's a fashion designer. So I had a bit of an in to New York. So I, uh, I got a summer job in a department store in the lighting department. I saw, sold lights basically. And, um, I saved up a thousand dollars and I literally came with like a, a suitcase, a thousand dollars in a portfolio. Wow. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> and it was, it was one of those things when the thousand dollars was gone, I uh, was going to have to get on a plane back up. But, yeah. Um, so I'd, I'd actually visited New York a couple of times. I'd been out to see her and I did some sort of preliminary interviews at a couple of places. Um, and, you know, smart design was always my dream job. Um, so, you know, I went to interview there as soon as I got here. They were kind of number one on my list that I was going to speak to. Uh, and it seemed to go well, but it was one of those things. It just wasn't a position there. So, mm. you know, I continued interviewing around. I mean, there was, at that point, there was, you know, uh, Teague was still around in New York. Um, you know, I interviewed people like, you know, Echo. Yeah. Eric was one of the first people that ever interviewed me. He was a lovely guy. Um, and I picked up a little bit of freelance work. So, uh, you know, that was helping to pay the bills a little bit. But, the, you know, the funds were running pretty low. And then one day, I mean, and this is such a classic New York story. So <laughs> one day I, I went and I was having a chat with these uh, two women that had a little firm, Able Design. Mm. And um, we were talking and looking through my portfolio and things like that. And then all of a sudden, one of the women who was the partner in the firm's her name was Lisa Crone. She's out in, uh, I think she's out in LA now, actually. Okay, well, she's out cool. in California. Anyway. Yeah. Um, she said to me, you know what? I, w I was speaking to the guys at Smart the other day, and they'd met this English guy recently, and they wanted to get back in touch with him, but they'd lost his information. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you're like, like me? I, you're like, I have a product. I can <laughs> give them my email. They right. can send it to me. No. Yeah, so... <laughs> Wait, was it really... Maybe it was another English guy that they... And then you sent... <laughs> and so that I, I called him up the next day. Okay. And uh, spoke that's... to Tucker, and he was like, oh, my God, I'm so happy you called. That's oh, amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. And I, uh, I went in, and they said, yeah, someone just left. And I interviewed the rest of the partners and got a job at Smart. Yeah. That's a real word of encouragement for hopeless romantics. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. maybe, maybe they just lost your number. That's yeah. great. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh, man. I don't know if we need to be promoting that. There's going to be a bunch of students just calling off the hook. Hey, did you lose my number? Hey, did you lose my number? 
I didn't hear it back. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, that's awesome. So at Smart Design, I mean, I know we've talked to a few smart people, but can you tell us about your experience there? Like, did you get to work on any of the, the OXO products for your time there? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I was lucky that um, uh, I, did, I did work a lot on OXO, and actually Sam was still with the company then. Mm. Uh, such a, an amazingly inspirational client. Yeah. He uh, seems to have had an impact on everybody who's worked with him. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, just, I could just sit in a room and listen to Sam Farber talk all day. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, the office was pretty small. It was when it was still on 18th Street. So I think when I joined, there was probably 12 or 14 people. Hmm. Um, there were f- four partners there at that point. Um, Tucker and Davin and Tom Dare and uh, Tamara was on the graphic side of things. Um, and it's really where I cut my teeth. I mean, that's how I learned to design products that could be made. Yeah. You know, yeah. there was such a wealth of talent there that would help kind of mentor you and, you know, tell you you can't mold it like that. All, all those sort of like DFM things. That, right. To be honest, you, you can only learn when you're starting to do it for the first time. Yeah. It always feels like that first year out of school, you learn as much as you did the entire four years of school, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Were there any kind of significant projects that you remember kind of working on at Smart or? Um, yeah, there was a few. Um, I mean, as I said, I worked a lot on OXO. Um, I was heavily involved in um, working with Johnson & Johnson, actually. Mm-hmm. We worked a lot for their dental division. So toothbrushes and floss systems and all that kind of stuff. And that was really informative to me, too, because that was the first time I was kind of going to corporate presentations Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, we would go out there to, uh, uh, I forget exactly where it was, Princeton maybe, or just near Princeton. There's a, like an, they had an amazing IMP designed headquarters and, mm. you know, we would go there and, you know, make our little presentations. Back then it was all markers and, you know, right markers and models that we'd made in the workshop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it was, you know, back in the days of like Photoshop 1.0. <laughs> there was no undo, I remember that. Yeah, there was yeah. no undo in Photoshop, what? Oh that's my crazy. gosh. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of amazing at the same time. It's like, well, you just gotta go with it. Yeah. You know. Well, you know, I mean, one of the things, even back in the steelworks when, uh, you know, when I was doing my undergraduate training, uh, the way that I learned to draft was using ink on vellum, not even pencil, ink. That no racing. Straight to ink. Straight to ink, yeah. <laughs> if you make a mistake, throw it all away. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it makes you, makes you think, makes yeah. you be very yeah. careful about what you do. Well, I'm curious if we can go back for a second to RCA. I mean, was there, what was the training there for visualization? Was it pretty typical industrial design? markers and and things like that or yeah by then we were into CAD a little bit mm. um but yeah it was a lot of, a lot of markers uh, a lot of sketching a lot of models there was a big emphasis on model model making and prototyping they had a, they had amazingly yeah. uh, equipped shop as it were and technicians that would help you out mm. what type of modeling materials uh, a lot of wrench shape but yeah. you know there was also you could see and see things and whatever i make <laughs> i remember once I did a design and it was for a wall-mounted blender. 
<laughs> All right. Okay. I, you know, it I'm was with you. It was one of those. No one has any countertop yeah, space. Right, right, I'll do yeah. a wall mount with blender. Okay. And there was like blade storage and two different containers. Anyway, I made this model, and one of the technicians helped me because it was a really tricky vac forming job on the on the jugs itself. And I created a background. I tiled a piece of ply plywood. You know, had the blender on there so it looked like it was on the tile backsplash. <laughs> Took it down to the photo studio to do the photos. I got one photo before it fell off. <gasps> oh, completely no. smashed into smithereens. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the that's that studio nightmare. We spent. Stuff. I I must have spent I don't know, hundred hours on this model. Yeah. How uh, good was the photo though? <laughs> uh, well, luckily it was like you know <laughs> half decent exposure. <laughs> God, I can't imagine. One photo, just like, yeah. and that's it. <sighs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, the, I did want to ask you about just RCA in general because it, it has such a, a great reputation and prominent alumnus. Yeah. Like, what what is it about RCA that gives it that reputation? Can you speak to your to that experience for you? And Yeah, well, I mean, I think the fact that it's purely a postgraduate school mm. plays into that. Mm. Um, Just the dedication level of the students? Yeah, I think so. You know, people are really there for a reason, you know? Yeah. Um, and, they, and they really want to, you know, get something out of it and achieve something. So that's definitely one side of it. I mean, we would work pretty much nine to nine. Yeah. You know, five days a week or six days a week, actually. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of it, you know, the teaching was great, but really, to be honest, it was all, all about the peers. Yeah. And it was the peers that were pressing each other because it was quite a competitive environment, at least during the time I was there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there were some collaborations with other departments, which were, you know, amazing. Um, but it was also, like I said, I mean, going back to that thing, we were all, I think, acutely aware that there weren't that many jobs to go around mm. at the end of it. Yeah, right. Um, so it was supportive and competitive at the same time. Yeah. Mm. Do you keep in touch with any of those people? Or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, and I think it's also a little interesting how you start out engineering. And this is actually a common question that we get. We have a good few engineer listeners who kind of want to transition into the industrial design field. And I'm guess I'm more more curious around how was that degree, that industrial design engineering degree, kind of different from a traditional industrial design degree? Did they like break you of some of your, you know, very, you know, systematic constraints and try to get you to explore more create creatively? No, it was you had to show um, a more methodical approach to mm. the design, but also you had to take things to a much more detailed technical level. So, uh, so for example, my sort of thesis project was um, a digital camera, which of course doesn't sound like so amazing back then, but you know, it wasn't just enough to like figure out the UI and figure out the, the, the form as it were. I had to do like all the lens optics to oh, actually prove that like something like, you know, that it was actually feasible as it were wow. within the package that I was talking about. And yeah. there was, 
you know, an articulated kind of handle that actually moved the screen. And, you know, mm. I had to figure out like the gearing for that and how it was all going to work. So it was more in depth, I think, than some of the ID students had to prove. I see. So it was more of a combination. Like it's, yeah. they relied on your engineering abilities. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I mean, some of the guys there, I mean, one of the, uh, one of the guys, Mark, uh, Mark Bickerstaff, who ended up, uh, I think he was like head of design at Kohler. Mm -hmm. uh, for a long time. I mean, he built an electric bike for his thesis project. It was amazing. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> like, rode away on it. Yeah, literally. Like, that was the end of his thesis. <laughs> yeah, he rode off rode and off. you never saw him again. Off into the dust, yeah. <laughs> it's the so, countryside. Um, yeah, it was pretty, pretty hard work in that respect. Yeah. You know, you had to satisfy the engineering components of it as well as the design components. Yeah, that's, that's really impressive. No, that's awesome. Um, so I guess back to smart design, I guess you, you know, you had a great time there designing these, you got a little taste of the, the toothbrush and the, the hygiene industry, um, which you've also done some now with prime studios, but yeah. we'll, we'll get to that. So was OXO, was OXO already a client when you showed up or yeah. 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 Okay. So OXO had been launched, I think about four or five years when I, when I was there. Oh, Okay. So we were doing, um, obviously, line extensions, mm -hmm. but thinking about some of the offshoot lines as well. Mm. Um, so, I, yeah, I worked quite a lot on OXO. Like I said, I did Johnson & Johnson. There was a lot of, like, little minor projects on the, on the phone. I, um, I did a really involved project with, um, was to de design, actually, it was, like, dedicated, they're called trading turrets, basically dedicated telephone systems for stock traders mm, okay um, that was very sort of research and UI based and I worked really closely with uh, Dan Formoso I don't know if you know Dan mm. um, amazing guy you should interview Dan actually much mm. more interesting than I am <laughs> um, and you know we got to um, you know go visit all the trading floors stock to the talk to the stock traders well, about you know how they operated. I mean, it was a real eye-opener. Yeah. Um, I remember the company that we were doing it for, the, the president of the company um, had a yacht in the old World Trade Center yacht base. And I remember, <laughs> they always used to make me do the presentations because I think maybe it was the English accent. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember one summer's afternoon having to present to all these, like, you know, the Bear Stearns telecom manager and things like that downstairs in this yacht and we were just rocking like really slowly side to side <laughs> and i'm not i'm not a good sailor and, oh no and oh, it was no. a fairly high pressure thing as well you oh know? man it was a it was a tough one uh, that's, <laughs> that's a did you have story. to run out of the room at any no, point you I, kept it together i kept it together just, that's good that's just. good oh my gosh yeah i can't imagine but um no i mean i i worked with i i, I was lucky you know i worked with tucker uh, took a V-Meister, you yeah. know, Davon was an amazing mentor to me. I'm still in touch with Davon. Um, you know, there were some great designers went through the doors at the time that I was there. Like Scott Henderson was there at the same time as yeah. me. Yeah. You know, Dave Peschel who's out in California now. Steve Allendorf, Steve Rusak. Yes. Some really, really, you know, top-notch sort of friends. And I'm still in touch with a lot of them. Yeah. Actually. I mean, that's awesome just to gain all those connections as well. Yeah. So... How did you transition from Smart and then you went to Able Design? Am I correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, 
I felt I was actually working too much on OXO. Mm. Um, I, I sort of, I think maybe had a bit of an affinity for housewares or maybe do have an affinity for housewares. Um, but ironically, I kind of said to myself, I don't want to get pigeonholed. <laughs> Being a housewares designer, of course, now you look now and there's like a ton of housewares here, you know. But, um, and the opportunity came up. Um, Lisa Crone, who I mentioned to you, who, I, who was the one that told me about yeah. the position, she'd moved to California and her path, partner, Martha Davis, uh, had this company Able Design, much smaller consultancy. So um, I joined forces with her and went there as design director. Okay. And um, it was much, much smaller. We were down on 21st Street. Actually, it was only three blocks away from Smart at that point. Um, and, you know, we did a variety of just run-of-the-mill sort of industrial design projects. It's mm. kind of like, you know, design me a toaster kind of thing. Um, but we worked a lot... Um, on the redesign of uh, ortho tricycline contraceptive systems, which was really super interesting. That's where I first got exposed to sort of really in-depth consumer research. Yeah, mm. you might have to explain a little bit more about that. So it was, it was it's birth control, right? basically. Yeah. So um, at the time, what happened was the pills came in a dispenser, which was in essence like a single-use plastic dispenser. Right. You, threw, you threw it away. Um, and so they were moving to a system where you would have a permanent dispenser and then you would just refill it with a foil blister pack. Mm. Um, but of course, you have to be super careful when you know, you're talking about prescription medicines like that so that there needs to be no way that somebody... Because, you know, birth control pills, the the estrogens and all the additives as it were I'm not sure exactly what's in it at this point you know they change throughout the cycle and that's what yeah. brings on a period so right. you need to make sure that nobody could go back and take the wrong pill by mistake mm, yeah, and that people understand it um, and then just like the whole messaging and packaging system so yeah it was it was a super interesting project yeah so what did that user research look like <clears throat> a lot of focus group testing basically yeah. that's lot a lot of focus group testing and in-home use tests um you know we used to um they would create prototypes which could kind of time and date stamped when somebody actually took a pill oh interesting uh so to you know because birth control is more efficacious when you take it at the same time every day as it were so uh they were really curious about what people's patterns were about how they did uh, you know how they were taking the medication and that actually morphed into a job that we did. <clears throat> I'm not sure if it's still around, but it was called um, it's called the personal pack, and it was taking this sort of very nondescript beige um, sort of pill dispenser and sort of cosmeticizing it for want of a better word. We we almost wanted to make it look like a makeup contact compact, and the reason being that not because we were make it trying to make it look pretty, but we wanted people to not feel embarrassed to like put their birth control out on the counter or to carry it with them. That you know, if their purse opened in public, that everyone wouldn't point at it. Right. Say because yeah. again, it was all that thing about you know just trying to in, in, in uh, increase efficacy, as it were. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, just doing that much research. I mean, that's a completely different kind of side of the design world that. I don't even think we get to touch on very often. No. Is like medical and how in-depth that research can be. Yeah. 
So those focus groups were they were they like one way mirror type yeah, things? Yeah. yeah, it's the classic. Can you just rent out one way mirror spaces? Oh, yeah. I'm, I I mean I assume you can. There's yeah. full companies that will run focus groups and everything for you. Yeah. We yeah, yeah. we we did one when I was back at my pet make uh, the pet company. We got to see like people talk about pet toys and stuff. Yeah. It's crazy. It kind of feels like weird because it's like you're spying on them, but right. they know that there's people behind the mirror. Yeah, they yeah. know. And they, te- you know, a good moderator tells them yeah. and explains and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, supposedly you're not um, going to interact with the people, but um, I was out in Minneapolis a few few months ago. We actually did focus groups where the whole team actually went in and met the respondents at the end of it. Which oh, was, interesting. Which was interesting. First time huh. I'd ever done that. And, and how did they respond to that? <laughs> Um, you know, it was, it was, I think, nice for them actually to see that, you know, that these were real people that cared about what their thoughts were, you know, and not just some blank corporate type. Yeah. I think we as designers always assume like, well, of course people would want to meet, meet us. Like we're making, we're making these cool things that they use, but but yeah, I, I don't know. Like yeah, until until you're the one on the other side of the mirror and someone's trashing your design, <laughs> <laughs> or can't figure out how to get the top off. Yeah, or where you're like, like I heard what you said. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh, like, man. are you stupid? Of course, you you squeeze, you squeeze there. <laughs> oh man, banging that, on the glass. <laughs> I hope that'd be a bad focus because I don't think that would work out. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I mean, you know, focus groups are interesting. Actually, you do. You know, I think you only learn so much. You know, you, you, you know, people are very incremental in what they respond to. Yeah. Um, and they what they want is things that are just a little bit better than what they currently have. They don't necessarily... I don't think, like, the big idea ever came out of a focus group. Mm. But it is an important way to dial in those last 10% of the details. Mm. That's like a, a good barometer. Yeah. I, I do like that point because... Sometimes it, it does feel, and I know that there's a lot of students listening, that it feels like that is the, the research is like the foundation, and it, and it very much is. Um, but a lot of times, I think people do miss that kind of spark of innovation right. that, you know, maybe a focus group might miss. And so I think that was a good way to put it, of like dialing in that last 10%. Yeah. Yeah. Because there is sometimes at the end of a project where determining those details kind of it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't feel as, I don't know. It doesn't feel like maybe there's as much at stake for you personally, like when you're talking about CMF or those final details and to have somebody else yeah, yeah. kind of vocalize those ideas. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So, Stuart, uh, you know, were there any other kind of fine, I mean, you were the design, you were a design director at Able Design, yeah. and I guess... Previously at Smart, you were a senior designer. So how was that transition? I'm I'm guessing that you did some more man- managing and kind of... Yeah, I mean, it was a small company, so I was still very hands-on at that okay. point. I think, you know, you know, looking back on it, I would say that my time at Smart Design was where I learned how to design. Mm-hmm. My time at Able Design was where I learned how to run a design business. Mm. You know, so I was very involved in the pitching and writing the proposals. And, you know, proposals are, you know, 
the dirty little secret of the design world, you know, it's like the hardest thing to do is to write a proposal. Oh, right. let's, let's spill those secrets. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's, it's kind of twofold. So, you know, um, people come to you with a brief and some briefs are better than others. Um, and, you know, you have to really try and predict the path of a project and then, you know, assign a fee to that, you yeah. know, and, uh, depending on how well you've predicted it, you know, that's kind of how much profit you make, you know, and of course some clients are better than others in understanding if scope changes or whatever, but, um, it's also a lot of clients need that guidance of like, Hey, this is the point of where we should be plugging in some prototyping, or this mm, is the point right. where it's important to start to get like vendor feedback so that we don't go too far down the path before we figure out that it's going to be not be cost effective to make it that yeah. way. You know? Have you had any hard lessons? Um, I think like every week is a lesson, <laughs> to be honest. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it, it's an iterative process. I mean, it's one of those things, the more you do it, the more you understand. And, you know, we're in an agency situation where like every project's different it's like we never have a singular sort of cookie cutter process every proposal and every project plan we, we write is custom to the client because everyone has different needs yeah yeah you know that's a good point because oftentimes you find those design studios that just like or i feel like it's younger designers i see their portfolios on their website and it's and they put out the process of like it's like a cookie cutter thing oh it's yeah like, it's like we have a five-step trademark right. process and we pop your project in here and the success comes out <laughs> anyone ever tells that you just yeah. run away <laughs> walk out the door oh man yeah so how do you i mean i guess you're saying that in the proposal you are setting out a custom plan and is that based on you know, that's based on meetings that you've had with the client to understand. Yeah, I mean, we try and really do as much sort of upfront, backwards and forwards and research with the client because really, you know, what, you, what you're trying to do is understand the reason behind the project, yeah. not, not how the project is going to actually pan out. And, that, and so the more client contact you have, and, you know, we'll provide sort of templates to clients that aren't used to writing design briefs so that they can give us the information that they mm. need to make sure that, you know, we're, we're meeting their needs when they, when they need it. Yeah. That's especially important, like, on the work that we do with the startups. Yeah, um, that's a good point. That's, that's interesting. So you're actually, you're actually giving them a brief and saying, what do you think you need from us? No, no, we're, or, we're giving them basically a template and saying, this is the information that we need right. from you in order for us to put together like an effective project plan. Gotcha. Yeah. And you're yeah. digging down really deep to like the core reason that this thing should even exist. Yeah. 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 And yeah. so are you oftentimes changing somebody's perception of what they think they're looking for? Yeah, I mean, we de definitely push back. Yeah, you know, if if we feel that you know their their previous thinking hasn't been you know robust enough. Yet. Yeah, and does that? I mean, do you lose do you lose potential clients because of that, or do, are they pretty receptive to it? I mean, maybe it's a mix. I'm gonna be honest. You know, if they don't want to hear what we've got to say, why do we want to work <laughs> with them? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a bad way to start off. <laughs> yeah. 
I guess like as freelancers or, you know, I can speak from my own experience. I just sometimes I'm hesitant to to come in just as a, an individual and say, well, you're you're addressing the wrong problem. But it is I, I don't know. It's interesting that, you know, that's that's your brand is like we are we're here to figure out the problem that you're trying to solve. And I feel like sometimes with freelancers, people are just like, we just need to hire a you know gunslinger to to do the job. Yeah, and I mean you know we go through that as well. Yeah, and there'll be you know decisions that clients make on which which designs to go forward with that you know maybe we don't agree with, but at that point you're you know seventy percent of the way through the project, and you're not just going to walk away and leave them in the lurch. Right. So you know you go ahead and finish the project, and you know maybe you're not as you don't believe it was the right decision, but it's, you know, you're not going to leave them in the lurch. And, you know, I'm going to say the position between me, like running an agency and you as a freelancer is exactly the same. I always say a freelancer is an agency of one. Hmm. Yeah. So those whole client relationship skills are no different to what I go through on every day, every day basis. That's interesting insight for sure. You just have... I feel like where you have maybe a slight advantage is just a body of work that you can say, listen, like you should really listen to me because I've, I've proven these results. And maybe at the start of a freelancer's career, it's harder to say like, well, you should listen to me because you've got to look at my student work. (laughs) <laughs> Look at my stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think part of it is just like building up that body of work and just time. But no, that, that's, that's awesome. And so, Stuart, I want to hear about the leap of, of faith from going from able design and doing your own thing. Yeah. Because that's, uh, always, that's always a scary thing. It was a leap of faith. Um, yeah, for one reason or another, I just felt it was it was time to, to leave Able. I don't really want to get into that too much. But um, I literally, again, it was one of those things. I didn't really have a plan. And I walked out of Able one day. I had a couple of clients that I was actually freelancing with when I was at Smart Design. I was doing a couple of freelance jobs on the side. And I took those to Able. And mm. they came with me when I left Able. But I didn't really have any clients. And... I literally started working on, you know, my kitchen table. That was it. Yeah. That's the <laughs> way to do it. It was all, it was purely on your own or did you have anybody that you kind of took with you or No, I actually I have to say my biggest regret uh is that I started Prime Studio on my own. I wish that in retrospect that I teamed up with a couple of partners and we'd all gone into it together. Yeah. And and why do you why do you say that? Is it just the amount of work or just having different perspectives or it's it's different perspectives mm-hmm. it's a little bit of a support structure but i also think as well it's um it's just a lot of responsibility you know i'm, I'm very cognizant of the fact that like the guys out there you know are dependent on me to make sure that we have the business so that i can pay their mm. wages so they can feed their families you know it's yeah. uh, and so um and, you know, when you're the sole owner of a firm, you know, all that responsibility ultimately, you know, rests on your shoulders. Right. Yeah. You're like, you're responsible for paying people's yeah. salary and stuff. That's, that's a little nerve wracking. I can see that for sure. Yeah. The yeah. other thing is that, you know, no one, 
no one teaches you how to run a business or a yeah. design business, you know? So it's, there's just definitely been moments throughout my career where I just really would have liked to have someone else there as a sounding board. Yeah. You know? No, that's a, that's an interesting insight as well. Yeah. But that, like, being nice, that being said, it's nice not to have to answer to anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> what did you, I mean, what did you gain starting prime over continuing to work at like a smart design or another age? Was it just, was it pure, purely ownership? Was it, was it that, or was there a specific point of view that you felt like you weren't able to? Um, you know, I think I've always been reasonably entrepreneurial. Mm. Um, and I think it, the time was right for me to control my own destiny a little bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, Abel, shortly after I left, got bought by Razorfish, which was one of the, like, the early big like, digital agencies in town. So I, I have no regrets about you know, leaving Abel at that, at that time. Yeah. I, I do think about um, what would have happened if I'd stayed at Smart. Because uh, you know, they, you know, when I started, there was maybe 12, 14 people. When I left, there was probably 30. And then you know, their growth just you know, went on a skyrocket. Yeah, I hear they're hiring. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Miguel Cole David. <laughs> oh, man. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm really excited to get to the, to the prime section yeah. of this because... Um, yeah, like, how did you grow it? I mean, you're at your kitchen table. Yeah. You have a, a couple clients with you. I, they I, were small, small projects. Small projects. Yeah. You know, what was that next step? Like, how did you get the word out? Did you do any like self-promoting or? Yeah, I mean, I, it was, I was a hustler. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I said, I'm a, kind of a bit of an entrepreneur. You know, I used to sell cars through college to like, you know, pay my way. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my dad's a used car salesman. I mean, I think okay. so, some of that probably rubbed off on me. Okay. So yeah, I would literally go and cold call people. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and just get the work that way. And then. There was also, there was a little bit of work uh, which we used to get. That's when I first started doing structural packaging. Mm. So there would be certain brand agencies around who didn't have structural packaging expertise. So, you know, they would get a project to, you know, redesign Tropicana or something like that. And they were, they were redesigning the brand identity and the look and feel of the bottles and the labels, as it were. But they needed, like, structural concepts to show those on. So I started working... Uh, you know, as a kind of independent contractor, really. Okay. For a couple of brand agencies like that. And then at some point, I assume you hired a person. You hired, you yeah. brought on people and... Yeah. Um, so we went through uh, a couple of rounds. It was a slow growth, to be honest. I mean, you know, I used to work with a lot of people on a freelance basis. Um, I don't think we actually officially hired anyone, like salaried employee for... Maybe like four years. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I used to do a lot of the work myself. Um, you know, it was, I was an agency of one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, I gave myself a name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that's actually what I was going to ask you. Why prime and, and not Stuart Harvey Lee design? Um, well, I, I, I was never, uh, I was never interested in staying that small or being an individual. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I really didn't want to be Stuart Ivy Lee Design. You know, I wanted to make sure that 
I was hopefully going to create an environment where, you know, people could come and grow and feel part of it. And I mean, you know, every patent that we sign, anyone who works on it, you know, is always part of that patent. Anything that we get promoted in terms of an award, we always make sure that all the designers are, you know, called out on that and what their role was. Um, I think a lot of that was down to those years at Smart. I mean, they were, they were very nurturing and uh, like a family. And it's kind of, I wanted to try and replicate that, I think. Yeah. Did you, during the time that you were creating Prime, did you reach out to, like, were you getting any sort of advice from those people that you had worked with at Smart? Like, were, did you have any mentors as you were starting this process on your own? Not or really. Was it, yeah. Not really. I mean, I did, the mentors that I had, it wasn't really, I wouldn't call them mentors, but um, there was a, a few graphic design agencies mm. that I used to talk to because basically we weren't competition. And it comes, comes, that's, comes down to that, like being a business owner is a, is a lonely place sometimes. Hmm. You know, I mean, obviously I talked to a bunch of the guys that own firms, you know, in, in the city and well, all over. But, um, you know, we share sort of, stories from the trenches as it were but it can only go so far right right you know um whereas talking to these people who were starting graphic design firms they were going through all the same headaches that i was and all the same things about how do you get clients how do you manage business how do you deal with this yeah but it wasn't competition right right that makes sense yeah but i will say you do now have a pretty pretty wide breadth of branding work yeah. From Prime Studio. Yeah. And how, how does that, I mean, how did you start doing the, the branding side of design? I mean, train industrial designer, you start doing some more brands and... Yeah, I mean, it's weird. For an industrial designer, like, a lot of my inspiration has always come from graphics. Mm. Um, I'm not quite sure why. Mm. But, um, I mean, you know, going back to, you know, you talked to me about those, you know, how were you first exposed to design? I can clearly remember this one instance. There was a magazine came out in probably the early 80s in England called The Face. And you should Google it or you okay. know, find a, a picture. And it was kind of like a fanzine. It was like a, a pop culture magazine that mm. was like off, off on left field. And it had a custom design typeface for the logo. And the A in the face was a pure triangle. Mm. And I remember looking at it and just having this absolute aha moment in like, oh, you can subvert things like that. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, I I uh, look it up. I'll put it up on the, on the video. Yeah. So the, the magazine was, it was art directed by uh, Neville Brody, uh, who's an amazing graphic designer. I actually got to meet him uh, a year or so ago and it was like a, a major moment for me. It looks like they're they're still they're still around. I think they just relaunched, actually. Yeah, because I see Harry Styles on here, and he yeah. definitely wasn't around in the seventies. Yeah, but uh, but this is this is really cool. So, so but yeah, go, going back to your question, Nick. So it's part of that startup thing uh, that happened, and you know. We'd done work with a couple of startup companies previously. I mean, everyone does, obviously. Uh, but Harry's was really the one that opened the floodgates for us. Yeah, that. let's let's dive into Harry's. I think that's a good. I mean, I shaved this morning with Harry's. How do I look? 
fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Close shave. Touch his face. <laughs> so yeah, how did you nail that project? Like, how did you get into the startup scene? So um, it was a very roundabout way that we were introduced to the two partners uh, at Harry's when they were still in in the the very formative part of developing the company. So literally the company was the two partners. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, but they had already engaged with um, a branding agency, um, Partners in Spade, who now called Mythology. Um, so the weird thing is that the guy who's the president or the founder of Partners in Spade is it's an amazingly talented guy called Anthony Spaduti. Like, probably one of the most insightful people I know. Back in the day, he taught me Photoshop so that we could do the renderings of those little ortho personal pack. Oh, like wow. cosmetic things. Yeah. He was the one that, like, taught me how to do the shading and then, like, do the layers out so that we could change colors and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, <laughs> fast forward, like, 15 years or 20 years, I suppose. Well, 15 years. And we got introduced to them, and Partners in Spade had done, like, the initial brand positioning. Okay. And um, the two partners came here, Jeff and Andy, and we just, you know, hit it off. I mean, I think that we understood what their vision was. Um, and so they engaged us to do the industrial design. Um, and then, you know, we worked with them as they built the team out at Harry's. Um, but we also, you know, we introduced them to their um, initial manufacturing partners in Asia. Um, and I actually, you know, I went out to China with Andy to like go check on the factories to do due diligence and check on first tooling and all mm. that kind of stuff. And we also, um, we introduced them to the external IP council. You know, I'm not sure how much you know, but around razors and shaving, there's an awful lot of IP. So yeah, so we basically took them through that entire manufacturing process. And it was one of those things that, you know, we were saying to them, now's the time we need to make, you know, a first proto. Now's the time we need to take up, make a weighted proto. Now the time we need to make something which has enough fidelity that we can shave with it, you know? Yeah. Mm. I mean, I just, I think it's really interesting how far you take the clients. Like you even went to China just to check on the, the manufacturing and everything. Right. You know, that's I, not the norm, to be honest. Okay. Yeah. I mean, do you think some of your background in, in the engineering really shines through in those scenarios? I think, I think what happened, I mean, we Prime had been going a long time before Harry's came along. Mm -hmm. And we had worked on some like pretty major programs with some large CPG companies um, like Unilever. We used to do a lot of work for, as it were. And as the design consultants, we were almost the conduit, as it were, that everything else fed through. So, you know, obviously we'd be talking to the brand teams, but we'd be talking to people on the supply side and we'd be talking to people, you know, on the consumer research side, as it were. But we were like a little hub in the middle. And I think that being one of those people that helps piece together 
uh, where a project is and where it needs to move and also understands that different people have, you know, that they, everyone wants to see the success of a project, but people may have like very different competing goals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, obviously on the brand side, they want to get to market as fast as possible, you know? Uh, so I think what it taught me was like how to be a manager or a project manager. Mm -hmm. And then that same experience, like, helped me teach people that hadn't done that before, hadn't developed product before, like, what they needed to do. Yeah, I mean, I, it does seem like that is a much, it, it almost feels like you are, like, an in-house team that startups can kind of use to create a product. Like, it's, it's you're reaching out into areas that I've never really even experienced, like, that whole IP thing, like, that's... Mm. You know, that's a whole other area of, like, expertise. Um, I just think that's interesting. And, and the, you know, the Harry's Razor is really beautiful and amazing. I don't know. Is there any interesting stories about kind of the, the design of how you created it? It's very simple, clean. Well, you know, it's very simple. But, um, and that was, that was definitely the brief. Yeah. But, um, you know, if you, if you actually take apart a Harry's Razor, like a Harry's Truman Razor, uh, it's actually kind of complicated inside. So, you know, it's, you know, we didn't approach it just from the point of view of we're going to sculpt a good-looking handle, as it were. You know, we, we literally tested every razor out there. I mean, oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you've got a nice, clean shape, but the, the amount of nicks and, and cuts that we used to come in with. So, you know, part of that was understanding, you know, razor geometry. Uh, part of it is understanding... Uh, you know, preferred weights. Um, you know, you need to have a certain amount of weight to make you feel comfortable, but you don't want to have too much weight. Yeah. Um, a lot of it actually comes down to the balance of weight as well. You want to make sure that, um, you know, we'd sculpted the handle so that we had like a little bit of a fatter belly so that it rolls between, you know, your fingers, but then we have like, you know, uh, details up in the neck area for like, you know, you know, minor little adjustments that you make. Mm. Everyone's just making ever so slight minor adjustments all the time that yeah. they're doing it. And um, if you just made that out of a solid piece, it would be bottom heavy. So yeah. one of the things that we did was, you know, go do a lot of backwards and forwards with the manufacturing vendors about not only how to, how to make the thing in the first place, but to make it so that uh, we, we had the right weight balance. So there's actually... I, it might have changed now, because, um, but I don't think too much. But there's a, a zinc core, but you couldn't do a solid zinc core because then it got too heavy. Right. Uh, we couldn't do an aluminum core because we there was something about the corrosion resistance that we didn't want to do, and it hmm. did, and also the the aluminum <laughs> wasn't going to give us the right click when the head went on. Oh, interesting. So and so there's a zinc core, but then there's also uh, a polycarbonate belly piece, and that's really almost like filler. Mm -hmm. And then it all gets overmolded, and that's what gives you the right distribution. That's yeah. what makes it such a, a mm -hmm. good razor. That's cool. I think you actually, on the landing page of the website, there's sort of a, an exploded yeah. view of the razor. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of a moment of, of pride for me, I think. Yeah. In that, you know, it looks really simple, but actually it's because all that thought went into it that makes what looks really simple a great product. right and that, it and it feels like beautiful too like yeah. it's it's i love the idea about balancing it perfectly so that you can maneuver it mm. on your face yeah and i imagine well the 
I imagine what maybe was not so simple was was the mechanism to hold the razors on because of the IP. I mean, was that a um, challenge at all? No, not initially, actually, because when Harry's first started, they were using um, uh, an existing blade cartridge mm. from uh, a factory in Germany that they'd sourced. So that click mechanism, that retention mechanism, was already set. Okay. So... Um, since then, you know, they actually bought the factory. Uh, and, you know, we ended up working with Harry's for about three or four years. And we actually eventually got involved in the design of the actual cartridge heads themselves. Hmm. As well as like many, yeah. many other projects as well. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, the thing, the thing that I've always really appreciated about Prime is I feel like while everything that you put out does feel... Like it, it doesn't, it feels very like fresh and new, but at the same time, it also feels familiar. And I, I feel like everything that I've seen out of the studio ages very well. Like every product, I've never been like, gosh, that's such a early 2000s product or 90s product. I feel like there's just a really refined feel to everything that it just now feels as much now as it did then. Is there... Like what well, is I appreciate your you saying yeah. <laughs> what what is your approach? What is your philosophy around aesthetics uh, when you're designing a product like the Harry's razor or or anything? Well, I mean, I take I take a lot of pride in trying to give everyday objects a little bit of personality. Mm -hmm. um, so there is a, a lot of nuance to you know proportion and aesthetics and CMF uh, that I think is, is really important. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, we'll go through a lot of iterations, not because the client wants us to, but just cause, because we want to, as it were, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about this on, on the way in this morning, and, I, you know, I don't know, I don't know if this is because of the age I was or the, the background I had where... <clears throat> so much of the work that we did originally was more hands-on, you know, um, rather than sculpting in CAD, we would sculpt by hand, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, so I think it gives you a different appreciation for form and proportion. Yeah, I definitely agree, for sure. And I guess even at RCA, you said that it was very model-heavy, so yeah. that's a good point. I, I always really, you know, try and encourage the guys out there to, like, you know, just get out of the computer a little bit and work with the physical. It doesn't matter if it's even bits of foam core or styrofoam or whatever, you know. Sometimes you just need to, to actually, like, sculpt something yourself because you, as you're in there sanding away, things will, things will present themselves to you or opportunities will present themselves to you that, like, maybe you don't get if you're just concentrating on, like, trying to build that, like, perfect solid work yeah. model mm -hmm. and wondering how to do that loft or whatever. Yeah, you know? definitely. And you can also feel it immediately, whereas, like, if a mistake happens in SolidWorks, it's it's not like, oh, well, that feels, that feels great right. in my hand. <laughs> yeah. Like, unless you, yeah, print it immediately. Yeah. But... Uh, we got to get in VR. I got the VR gloves now. You can, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, product designers. We, I, I don't. Are we product designers or industrial designers? I don't know. We were having this conversation the other day. I, from what I've seen in in uh, job searching in LA, 
product yeah product design seems to have been co-opted yeah. by the ux yeah. ui i know i started as an industrial designer while well, i was an industrial design engineer it took me like you know took me 15 years to be able to be a product designer and now i'm back to being an industrial <laughs> designer <laughs> that's funny that's funny um so but you know we make physical stuff yeah and you shouldn't make all physical stuff virtually i mean obviously there's a time and a place for cad and modeling and you know Certainly when you get into, you know, if you're getting into the more complex analyticals and finite element and all that kind right. of stuff, you know, you're not going to do that in our workshop in the back, you know. But yeah. um, there's, I, I'm a big believer in, I mean, we still sketch a lot by hand. Yeah. You know, uh, I think it's absolutely still the best way to communicate with the team quickly, you know, and to reiterate. Yeah. No, that's, that's amazing. I love that. Um, I wish we could talk about every single project you have here we, we right. didn't even get to pull anything out i also you also have done projects for ikea yeah and i just kind of want to hear a little bit about that backstory because ikea to me seems a little bit of a a black box in a way like it doesn't seem like you can just call them up and be like hey can i work with you guys or like, no and it didn't happen like that either. okay um so this was like oh, i'm gonna say back in Round about 2000, and the ex-creative director of IKEA, though he still had a lot of affiliations, had moved to New York. And um, for some reason, he persuaded IKEA that he wanted to do a lighting project. So uh, his, his big idea was that IKEA is modern Scandinavian design designed by modern Scandinavians. If you go there, it's like a bunch of, you know, 25-year-old, blonde-haired, blue-eyed people. Right. They're all, right. all supremely talented, but, you know, they're of that culture. Right, yeah. And so he had told them, he basically persuaded the, the people at IKEA that he thought it would be an interesting experiment to get an outsider's view of modern Scandinavian design. Mm. So he recruited a team of four of us here in New York. So uh, there was myself as, I'm going to say, like the pure industrial designer. Um, there was a guy called Robert Lewis, who was more of a lighting designer, but more craft. He would like, you know, weave his own lampshades and weld his own fixtures, all that kind of stuff. Um, it was an architect, Wayne Turret, um, who went between sort of retail, restaurant, um, and, you know, uh, just regular home environments. Um, and Harry Allen, do you guys know Harry? Yeah, the name I'm, is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Harry and, you know, Harry blurs that boundary between, like, product design and he also worked, you know, on the retail side of things. Like, he's the guy that designed Moss, you know, yeah. like the famous store on Green Street. And, yeah. Um, so we all had, like, different specialities. And we met together over a period of about six weeks to kind of brainstorm on ideas for lighting but like also lighting in the sort of scandinavian uh environment and what that meant the whole the whole idea about I, ikea is that you furnish with light so you know in in most modern scandinavian rooms there's not like a single light in the middle of the ceiling as it were it's a, you know and it's so dark there all of the year yeah you know that you can create um you know, different moods through having different types of lighting sources of different intensities. I mean, even in here, I mean, I'm kind of doing it myself. You know? <laughs> and um, so 
we did this kind of collaborative brainstorming thing for about uh, six weeks, and then we split and went off and developed our own designs. Yeah. And um, then all flew off to uh, to Sweden to go present them at IKEA, which was just an amazing experience. That's really cool. It's like this little think tank IKEA yeah. experiment. I love so that. So if you look over there, that oh, light yeah. there is one of the original lamps that they produce. The uh, it's called the Hargo. And if you look on the wall behind you, that's my original presentation sketch. Oh man, we'll have to put some photos of that as well. That's All awesome. in colored pencil. That's that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> was that was that like at the time was that the way that you typically presented things no, or this was, was this was for the Scandinavian audience for some reason and I don't know why I didn't push back on this but they said oh we want all of the drawings to be in colored pencil <laughs> <laughs> oh it was them pushing that's yeah. interesting did they have I mean it's a pretty big drawing here oh it's, my god I did a floor lamp <laughs> oh you had a it's it's full scale I yeah full I, scale. I drew a full scale floor lamp wow so you have three armed everything. Yeah, we prototyped it. The whole thing. That was another one. This was like a hang, hanging pendant. Oh wow. my gosh! Yeah, we're gonna drop these pictures in after. Yeah, but that's that's incredible. Why? Yeah, did you understand why they? No, <laughs> <laughs> I still to this day don't understand why they wanted a pencil drawing. I but I actually kind of enjoyed doing it. Yeah, you know, there's something kind of like you know doing that wood grain. There's something kind of crafty. It's, about it. I mean, know? it's amazing because I've never had a client be like. Yeah, like present. Like I want you to present in Play-Doh. Like I want, <laughs> I want you to do this very specific, weird thing. Yeah, I, and you know, I was. I guess at that point, I was so awestruck by the fact I'm. I'm like, oh my god, I'm designing stuff for IKEA. Yeah. I would have, you know, done the sketches in charcoal. Like, <laughs> you want know? gouache? Yeah. <laughs> I so, wonder if it's more of like a romantic thing. Yeah. If it's more of like that. Like Scandinavian, like oh, we, the great, the good designers, like all have like beautiful like colored pencil sketches or something. Yeah, like that. that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, what else are you gonna do when it's dark all the time except for like, <laughs> yeah. you know, Doodle do colored pencil <laughs> sketches? Maybe, maybe it kind of goes back to what you were saying, Stuart, about working with your hands. And sometimes those things take longer to make. Like if you're carving right. something, it takes longer, and your brain can almost distill that design longer maybe that's kind of yeah like maybe. meditate on the design it's like a, a meditative longer. act yeah I don't know. no definitely and you know there was i as i said i mean you know i learned how to draft by hand and there was a, a certain i don't know what the word is is it a pious kind of pleasure in like you know forcing myself to do those things yeah uh, <laughs> but i you know I was pretty proud of the, the drawings. That's why I got them back. Yeah, they they wanted to keep them. I was like, no, oh, I want them back. Yeah, these are, so these are the original. Yeah, that's awesome. Original. So how long, so was this the design that they ended up, this was the design they ended up choosing or did they, did they do all of your... They, they prototyped four of mine and then two of them finally made it to production. So there was that one and a, a wall lamp. How many ideas did you present? Probably about eight, I think. Okay, so you did eight full-size colored pencil drawings. Yep. They chose four. They went forward with two. You yep. said, "Yeah, that's cool." And that's so, amazing. how long did they did they run in this? Were they every store or? Yeah, yeah, worldwide. Yeah. worldwide. That's amazing. Um, and um, it was, 
you know, it was great. My name was on the box and the, uh, I still, I kept the packaging for these things because it was like designed by Stuart Harvey Lee. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Um, that's so cool. And, you know, they were in the IKEA catalogue. We went to visit the facility where they photographed the IKEA catalogue. It's about the size of, you know, three football fields. It's probably even bigger now. Yeah. Well, maybe not because maybe, I, did they even still make an IKEA catalogue? Yeah, they do. I, I mean, at least I feel like I've seen one recently. I'm sure they do. Do they? Do you I'm think sure they now do. they just have people living in those scenes <laughs> in those, and they just like right. Jane Goodall I, like take pictures yeah. of them in the wild? I do actually think that a lot of the IKEA catalog photos are now renders. Really? I I don't know who told me that, but I I do notice that a, a lot of them do look rendered. Hmm. Um, because they I'm had, sure like, mix, full but... environments, like, full room environments set right. up in these huge hangars, as it were, where they did all the photography of all the products for the catalogue. And I'm not sure how true this is, but somebody told us, um, you know, and this was back in the early 2000s, they said that, you know, on, every, on any given day, more people read the IKEA catalogue than read the Bible. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I certainly preach from the IKEA catalog, um, but yeah, that's that's amazing. Um, back to back to some of the other work. I am curious about like what you have seen over your career in terms of the clients, because like you've you know you've gone from the agencies, and I mean, I guess startups have kind of always been around, but maybe what we're seeing now more of, and what you've been designing more of is sort of this direct-to-consumer type design and so what what has that been like is that has that been really invigorating like creatively or you know can you speak to that yeah I mean you know we split the work that we do between startups and you know more established companies and one of the things that I love about working with startups is that you know you're working with people that have such a passion that mm. they're prepared to give up, you know, a potentially, you know, well-paid career, spend their savings on this, this thing, this idea that they have. And, you know, it's really refreshing to work with people that have that amount of excitement. It, it can also be a bit exhausting because <clears throat> they're living and dreaming this yeah. thing, you know, every single minute of the yeah. day. Do you have uh, to shut so, your phone off at a, a certain time? A little bit, time? yeah. But by the same token, you know... For the right people, not for every client, I'm going to say, I'm available on the weekend as yeah. well. Because if, you know, if they need you know, to talk, talk through issues that they're having, I mean, you know, you can't, they're living this thing like 24-7, right. you know, and I can't be, I'm 9 to 5 on a Monday to Friday, you know? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's not, it's not that common, but, you know. Um, so that's super exciting about working with the startups. In terms of the products themselves... I don't know. I don't know if many of the products we've designed from startups are intrinsically any different from what we would have done to go straight to retail. Mm. I mean, there are a few things that you consider about, you know, it's a, I'm almost ashamed to say it, but you, you, you know, you do consider things like how well is this going to photograph for Instagram and whatever. Sure. You know, it's like, if we're doing a pan, you know, we try and make sure there's a branded element somewhere near the main body of the pan, not all the way down the end of the handle, as it were. Yeah. Little things like that, you know. Um, and certainly, you know, we usually are working with them on the on the packaging and the unboxing experience and that right. type of things. Um, and it was through doing that that we started 
you know, doing more and more work on the branding side of things. So, you know, Harry's came to us, they engaged a brand agency. So they already had their kind of positioning strategy in place. Our, our job was to translate that into the physical product and packaging. But, you know, a lot of people what started coming to us that really had the idea for a product, but didn't really know where they were going to sit within that ecosphere. So that's why we started helping them out doing like initial product positioning, mm. uh, brand positioning. And then that led into, you know, brand identity and because we were doing the packaging anyway, for, yeah. for the most part. Do you have a, do you have a good example, like your favorite example of that where you, they came to you with just the idea and you wanted to do the brand and the packaging and everything? Um, well, these guys, hell, I mean, they came to us with an idea. I mean, they came to us with the most re- well-researched deck I've ever seen. Um, mm. Like, so well-researched that it was actually too long to read. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, but they'd seen an opportunity to do refillable deodorant. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's for a number of reasons, you know. Um, and so, yeah, we worked with these guys on the initial positioning, we did, we did the naming, we did the logo, we did the packaging design. We introduced them to the agency that did their initial website. Yeah. You know. Um, the and whole is, caboodle. Is, is Prime, is your relationship with these companies, is it purely client or do you invest in them in any way? Invest from... Like an emotional sense? Or? No, no. <laughs> a financial I, I, sense. Yeah. I mean, like, from my experience, it, you know, you get the, sometimes you get the mom and pop people coming to you about Kickstarters and things like right. that. And a lot of them say, hey, I don't have the funds right now. Maybe equity is a better option. I guess, you know, you said you split up your, your work between startups and more established companies. Is, is that some... Is there some financial reasons there? Or yeah, I mean, a... uh, you know, running an agency, cash flow is king. Yeah. yeah. So, um, that, you know, we have invested in a couple of the people that we worked with on an equity basis. Mm-hmm. You know, occasionally we will work with people um, on a royalty basis instead of equity. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, you said you've got a lot of, you know, students listening to this podcast. Equity, I'm going to say, is is a long game yeah only go there if you're prepared to pay the long game and stuff because it's you know a very illiquid asset you know basically nobody wants those shares that you've got right until somebody wants them right (laughs) and that could take 20 years that's true that's true uh you know royalties there's a more immediate gain but there's potentially not the same upside Mm. you know yeah that's really interesting um you know, we're running a little long, but that's okay. I think we would let it ride for a bit. Yeah. Um, I, I do have another question, maybe one or two questions left. What do you think is the most challenging aspect of running this whole studio? The most challenging aspect? You've stumped me. <laughs> um, I'm sure a lot of it's challenging, but it's, yeah. is, well, is there one thing that kind of sticks out like, oh man, if only I wish I... One thing that I've noticed, and, and maybe, this, uh, maybe this work isn't, maybe I, I missed it on the website, but it seems like you have stayed purely like product, like purely ID, purely packaging. You haven't really gone into the UX, UI side of things right. where you do see a lot of firms 
dabbling. Tr- yeah, dabbling yeah. in that. Although now I feel like there's sort of a retraction of of like, no, okay, we're just pure ID. Yeah. Was what was the what was the like the reason for that? Was that just purely like this is this is my expertise and this is what I want to sell as my expertise, or was there another reason for that? No, I think it's 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 a question of just being honest. Yeah. So, you know, we've always been by nature collaborative. So, you know, um, occasionally we'll t- team up with like external engineering resources if something comes on, on board that's like outside of our, in, you know, incapable uh, internal capabilities. You know, like I said, I mean, we work with IP, IP people on the side. We work with consumer research agencies. We, we work a lot actually in conjunction with branding agencies. Um, and it's part of that, I guess, like a feeling of somewhat of security that like, you know, if somebody comes to us with a job that requires, you know, some more UI work that I don't feel that we really are the best people to work with it, then I'll just tell them go work with the best people. Cause in the end, we just want the, the end project to be, you know, the end result to be as, as good as it can. Yeah. You know, so I have no, I don't feel the need to own every part of everything. Right. You know, but was there, was there any time in the firm's history where you were like, oh God, if we don't do some UI work, we're not going to have work coming in. Cause it seemed like that was the panic maybe, right. but maybe that was because the, the, those firms had gotten so big or I, I don't know. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't, I, I didn't ever feel that. Yeah. I also well, think that's it's, great. <laughs> I, also, I also think it's interesting. You've stayed a fairly small studio yeah. over, you've been in New York for two decades or Prime Studio has been in New York yeah. for over two decades. Is there any insight behind like a staying small? Because I, I feel like it seems like you could have expanded if you wanted to or, or maybe contracted it. I don't know. Maybe I kind of Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've, I think for maybe for two reasons. So one of them is that, you know, I've always liked the idea of designers interacting directly with the clients. Mm -hmm. And I think when you get to a certain size, that's when you need to have project managers or account handlers come into play. And I think that a lot can get lost in translation. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that happen when we've done collaborations with bigger agencies on some of the bigger programs we've done on the graphic side of things. So, you know, that tends to be more how those firms are set up. And I always liked that the clients had direct access to the designers and vice versa. Yeah. Uh, So that was kind of one reason for staying small and I, or smaller. And I think that perhaps another reason was just that um, it's, it's a, it requires a whole different uh, kind of management structure in order to grow the size above a certain number, mm. the size of an agency above a certain number. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and I just didn't really ever feel the inclination. Now, has it hurt us perhaps that we've maybe lost some projects because people thought that we were too small to handle them? Maybe, but I don't think that many actually. Hmm. So there was never a moment where you're like, oh my gosh, we just like, we just keep getting more projects. We should keep expanding. Or, or were you like always just let's keep it small. Let's, you know. Um, no, it was never like a conscious, like, oh, we're not going to take that project because we don't want to grow. Right. But there was definitely times when 
we've not done projects or turned down projects because we didn't feel that we would be able to dedicate enough attention to them. Mm -hmm. You know? No, that's really interesting insight. Yeah, I mean, I do really like that aspect of letting the designers talk to the clients. I think that's super important. Yeah, for sure. When you say that, you you mean all level of designer that's working on the project? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, our our interns sit in on client meetings. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's such an amazing opportunity for them because I feel like, yeah, at a larger company, it's like, oh, well, you know, sit this one out. We're going to give you that project that actually isn't going anywhere right right <laughs> the fake project yeah there, right? no i mean i think that you know the absolute best thing that we can do for the people at intern here is just to expose them to as much of the actualities of and realities of everyday design as it were and part of that is client meetings yeah. and part of that is learning how to present to clients yeah um do you do you sit them down before beforehand though, and you're like, listen, I'm gonna let you in on this meeting, but if you say one <laughs> word, no, I, I I actually quite often have them present. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's on I'm on doing. a boat. <laughs> I'll have to try that one on a paddle, on a stand up paddle boat. Oh man, oh man, that'll be the prime boot camp. Yeah. Well, Stuart, we always like to ask you know one kind of last closing question. And, you know, what are you excited for in the future? Maybe it's with Prime Studios or maybe it's just industrial design or just the design industry in, in general. But, you know, how do you see the future going forward? How do I see the future? Well, it's crystal ball time. Yeah. <laughs> or just what are you particularly excited about currently? Or like, yeah. Um, well, on a... On a super, super basic level, mm-hmm. we're actually designing some more cast iron at the minute. And oh, okay. I love cast iron. So I mean, <laughs> I'm very excited about that. And, you know, I don't get that hands-on in that many projects at the minute, but that's what I'm hands-on in. Oh, know? okay. Yeah, so, like, what know. is it that you love about cast iron? Yeah. Um, and just, this is cast iron cookware. Yeah, cast iron Not cookware. just, yeah. 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 Well, I think maybe it's a throwback to the time in the steelworks. Yeah. You know, and that huh. and that loving of molten metal. I mean, when we started working with Field Company, uh, the first thing that we said to them when they said, oh, we're going to be using a foundry out in Indiana, was like, I need to go to the foundry and see what they can do. You know, I just yeah. wanted to see it. Um, but it's also important as well to understand what the manufacturing process is so that you can understand how to design a, a better product. I mean, the first... Um, iteration of pans that we did for them you know we got a lot of breakage in the handles because as they go down the breakout line through the casting machines uh, so you know we had to tweak the design in order to, to be strong enough and you know unless you've seen that firsthand it's very hard to design for it mm. Mm. Yeah. that's awesome well Stuart thank you again so much for coming on the podcast this has been wonderful um, we can find you on Instagram at prime studio underscore NYC correct yeah, though I think we might be just about to change that. Oh, you're about uh, to change for, again. For now, you can you can find us at Prime Studio underscore. We we will make sure to link it in the on the website and in the notes, so you guys can can find it. Um, and then also your website. Yeah. Uh, uh, PrimeStudio.com. Okay. Awesome. Um, it's, all, it's all very simple. Awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Again, thank you, Stuart. It's been wonderful. Yeah, um, it's been really. Yeah, great. I I really appreciate. It. I've very much enjoyed the conversations. It's like. Uh, bit of a trip down memory lane really. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you were sure like i'm not sure if i can fill an hour i'm like oh we let's we, keep going we, we have interviewers say that all the time they're like uh-uh it's gonna go long it's gonna go long. <laughs> all 
All right. There's, I mean, yeah, you've had such an amazing career so far, and we're we're excited to see what Prime, you know, does in the future. Definitely. So definitely. thank you yeah, so well, much. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I appreciate your time, guys. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. And as always, I'm at Nick P. Baker. I'm at I Draw Receipts. Peace. Later.